Why should a child be afraid to go to school? It was almost like catnip for, for TV producers. They could just go to Boston or these other cities, put their cameras on white protesters, and that became the image that got seared in the minds of American viewers. The Black community was furious that, um, that it was a coordinated effort to disenfranchise them and sort of steal back political power. There was definitely resentment. And so is, is that racist? The real story is overshadowed by sort of a mythical oversimplification. This is Disintegration, a podcast looking back at one of the most painful chapters in Boston's history, the desegregation of Boston public schools in the 1970s. I'm Jesse Remedios. And I'm Valerie Wences. We'll also take a look at where Boston is today, how much has the city changed in the past five decades? Or does it deserve its reputation as one of the most racist cities in America? When I think of the civil rights movement, I conjure up black and white TV images of water hoses and dogs being used to attack black folks. And I mostly think of the South, not Boston. Yeah, that's definitely the popular view of things, but it's not necessarily the right one. Today, we'll meet a woman who led the decades-long fight to desegregate Boston schools. And this piece was produced by... Yours truly. Let's roll the tape. The Boston Busing Crisis. When the civil rights movement finally turned north, but arrived in a crash. Busing came in 1974 and was met like an invading army. Parents protested. What rights will they take away from us next? Let us go to our neighborhoods where our kids are safe. We want our kids safe. Entire communities rioted. And white adults attacked black children. The white resistance to school desegregation in Boston grew so bitter, so well organized, that two years later, CBS reported one third of white students stopped attending Boston public schools altogether. And so, 40 years later, Bostonians were still unsure what it was all for. In 2014, the Boston Globe ran a headline titled, Still Deciding What Busing Gained and What It Cost. Here's how local historian Jim Vrabel answered the question on the radio station WBUR. It was so disruptive to the city at the time because it caused so much hard feeling among people and because it has had a lasting, I think, negative impact to this day. Or so they say. For me as a historian, that traditional narrative really frustrates me. Um, I can tell you why. That's Matt Delmon, professor of history at Dartmouth College and author of the book, Why Busing Failed, Race, Media, and the National Resistance to School Desegregation. It focuses our attention on both the wrong time period and on the wrong people um, and on the wrong issues. In other words, it's the wrong story. The busing crisis wasn't the civil rights movement finally come north. The truth is, black Bostonians had been fighting for their civil rights and against segregated schools for decades before federal courts mandated busing. 
But Delmont says that in the decades since 1974, we've let all those images of angry white parents distract us. It was almost like catnip for, for TV producers. They could just go to Boston or these other cities, put their cameras on white protesters, and that became the image that got seared in the minds of American viewers. But it was really only a small slice of a much larger story. So when I approach this topic, I really think the focus needs to be on, on Black students and Black parents and the, the civil rights claims that are being advanced by Black Bostonians. That's what we're going to try and do here. Delmont will be back later in the episode for some reflections on this history and how it can help us understand the issues we face today as a city and a country. But first, let's turn back the clock to the summer of 1963, the year Beatlemania first arrived in the U.S., the year John F. Kennedy was assassinated, the year Martin Luther King Jr. first told us about his dream. And before all that in Boston, 63 was the year that black Bostonians, led by one of the fiercest civil rights organizers in the entire country, made a simple request. One that set the entire busing story in motion and drew a rift in the city that perhaps has never fully healed. Picture this. It's June 11th, 1963. A hearing room in Boston City Hall is packed with journalists and television cameras. They're all focused on the black woman seated towards the front of the room. Her name is Ruth Batson, chairman of the Boston NAACP Education Committee, and she's set to address the governing body of the Boston Public School System, the Boston School Committee. Madam Chairman, members of the Boston School Committee, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People is an organization dedicated to the elimination of discrimination and prejudice from all phases of American life. Our goal is first-class citizenship, and we will settle for nothing less. All immigrants In front of Batson are the school committee's five members. All of them are white. Behind her, are a handful of fellow black activists and parents. And outside the building, another 300 black Bostonians are demonstrating their support for what they know Batson is about to say. We make this charge. There is segregation, in fact, in our Boston public school system. We feel that it is the responsibility of school officials to take an affirmative and positive stand on the side of the best possible education for all children. And with that, Batson and the NAACP then issued a list of 14 demands. Demand number one. An immediate public acknowledgement of the existence of de facto segregation in the Boston public school system. The response was not great. And we were really innocent. We were naive. That's Batson recalling the meeting years later in an interview with the documentary Eyes on the Prize. The audio you heard earlier was a reenactment based on transcripts from the meeting. We walked in thinking that we weren't saying anything so special and we made our presentation and everything broke loose. Batson wrote about the meeting saying the activists were like lambs led to the lion's den for slaughter. 
we were insulted. <laughs> we were told our, our kids were stupid and this is why they didn't learn. We were completely rejected that night. We were there to all hours of the evening and we left battle scarred. Battle scarred, but also determined. That meeting kicked off a summer of continuous heated battles between the white school committee officials and black citizens demanding their constitutional right to an equal education not just be protected, but acknowledged. It was a very practical reason to do it in those days. When we would go to white schools, we'd see these lovely um, classrooms, small sizes, a small number of children in each class. The teachers were permanent. Um, we would see wonderful materials. When we'd go to our schools, we would see overcrowded classrooms, children sitting out in the corridors and so forth. These were disparities that Batson knew well. She saw them as a student, growing up in Boston, the child of a single mother and Jamaican immigrant. She saw them as a mother herself, having raised three daughters who she believed, with all her heart, received an inferior education in Boston public schools. And she understood them now as an activist, having worked with the NAACP for 10 years by the time she brought the de facto segregation issue to the Boston School Committee in 1963. And so then we decided that where there were a large number of white students, that's where the care went, that's where the books went, that's where the money went. So therefore, our theory was move our kids into that school where they're putting all of the resources so that they can get a better education. After that contentious first meeting, the Boston School Committee invited the NAACP back for a second negotiation on June 15th. But this time, there was no press just the activists and the city officials. But as Batson remembered, the newfound privacy didn't make the school committee's chairwoman, Louise Day Hicks, any more open to even the possibility that there was segregation in Boston. She was an enemy from the minute that we stepped into that door. And as we moved on, she became tougher. Um, at one point she said, the word that I'm objecting to is segregation. As long as you talk about segregation, I won't discuss this. Which is exactly where Hicks left meeting number two. And that's when things really escalated. June 18th. 1963, 3,000 black junior and senior high school students respond to the school committee's denial of segregation by boycotting Boston public schools. They instead attend freedom schools, organized at local churches and community organizations. Louise Day Hicks calls the boycott unnecessary. Batson calls it a success. July 9, 1963, Hicks tries to undermine the NAACP by declaring that the organization does not represent Boston's black community. Other activists not in the NAACP call Hicks's charge merely a facade behind which she and the Boston School Committee is hiding for their failure to meet their responsibilities. July 15th, the NAACP requests another meeting. One week later, their request is rejected. July 30th, the NAACP issues an ultimatum. If the Boston School Committee doesn't agree to continue negotiations, then every civil rights organization in the city 
will hold mass demonstrations at the school committee's office. August 2nd, the Boston School Committee agrees to meet with the NAACP, who in turn call off their demonstrations. They schedule the meeting for August 15th, but Hicks sets a condition. The term de facto segregation shall not be discussed. August 15, 1963. Once again, a crowd of press looked on as Ruth Batson and NAACP faced off against Louise Day Hicks and the Boston School Committee. At 7.04 p.m., Hicks called the meeting to order by asking Batson to proceed with the educational programs she wished to discuss. At its meeting with the Boston School Committee on June 15, 1963, the Education Committee of the NAACP requested that the school board take certain action with respect to 14 specific matters. So far as is known, the only action forthcoming has been a report dated July 9th of the Board of Superintendents commenting on 12 of the issues raised. At this time, we would like to go over the issues that, in the mind of the NAACP, remain unresolved. As Batson continued, the Boston Globe reported that the room grew more and more tense. It is impossible for this committee to come before you to discuss the educational problems pertaining to Negro pupils in Boston without first attacking the source of these problems, de facto segregation. Batson's statement would go no further. Hicks cut her off saying the school committee had already voted not to discuss the question of de facto segregation. Batson asked when that was voted on. We can take another one right now, Hicks responded. And before they did, the Globe reported that one committee member apparently pleaded with the NAACP to, quote, work with us. Another member prefaced his vote saying the term de facto segregation was inflammatory in nature. The school committee voted four to one not to discuss de facto segregation. In just 15 minutes, if that, the meeting was over. The conversation never got off the ground. So what happened next? Well, a lot of things. The civil rights activists and the Boston School Committee continued their battle over the existence of segregation for another decade, until the issue finally made its way into federal courts. There, Judge W. Arthur Garrity ruled on the side of the NAACP and black activists, saying that there was, in fact, segregation in Boston schools. In the meantime, Hicks held firm she never stopped denying Boston had a segregation problem, and it made her a political star. She even landed in the U.S. House of Representatives in 1970. As for Batson, she never gave up. She eventually stepped down from her position with the NAACP and went on to chair the Massachusetts Commission Against Discrimination for a few years. After that, she led a successful busing program that sent black students out of the city and two predominantly white schools in the suburbs. It's called METCO, 
and the program continues to serve students today. Batson also became a researcher here at Boston University. She wrote newspaper columns, she authored several books, and she continued advocating for black children behind the scenes until her death in the early 2000s. But has Ruth Batson ever really gotten her dues, her respect, her reverence in popular history? I think hopefully it's improved in the last, last 10 years, but I, I don't think she has yet. That's historian Matt Delmont again. For me, I would love to see Ruth Batson become the household name that she's um, as familiar or hopefully more familiar than someone like Louise Day Hicks. And I think she's, it's a good reminder that when you think about the civil rights movement, it's not just the iconic Southern leaders like Martin Luther King or Rosa Parks, but the movement only worked only successful because of the passion of these local leaders. And so I think Ruth Batson is the one of the names from Boston that I would love for more people to know, because in the process of knowing that name, then you start to understand something about how civil rights activism and how even act activism today functions. Delmont's dedicated a good chunk of his career to trying to make that happen. And not just because factually all roads of the Boston busing story lead back to Batson. We started this episode with Delmont telling us about some of the potential costs of focusing the busing story on the wrong people. Now, I think it's a good idea to talk about what we stand to gain from getting the story right. Delmont wrote about this in an article he published in the magazine The Atlantic in 2016. Here's what he told me when I asked him to revisit that argument. So since I published that piece in 2016, we've obviously uh, experienced a lot as a country. Um, and one of the most powerful things in the last couple of years has been the groundswell of activism about Black Lives Matter. Um, I think hopefully one of the things that more Americans recognize now is that racism has never been a distinctly Southern phenomenon, but it's part of our nation's history across the country. Um, I think talking honestly about the history of Boston, the history of racism in Boston, both in schools and much more broadly, housing, employment, um, everything else in the city, makes it possible for people to understand what we've been living through in the last couple of years. Um, I think for a lot of people, a lot of white Americans particularly, they were surprised by the, the persistence of police violence, surprised that it might be happening in cities like Minneapolis that are nominally considered pretty progressive. If you understand our nation's history, understand the history of places like Boston, Minneapolis, Chicago, um, you can't be surprised by that. And I think we don't have the luxury of, of being surprised. We don't have the luxury of being ignorant of our nation's history. I think Ruth Batson and the, the civil rights story in Boston is one small slice of a much larger story about our country, but it's if it's a story we can get right and tell honestly, I think it can help us understand why we're still grappling with these things as a country. Um, I think it, it helps to give us a, a clearer set of eyes to, to understand the Black Lives Matter protests we've seen in the last couple of years, and then even more importantly, how to a chart a more equitable future going forward. So why are we still grappling with racism here in Boston and across the country? What lessons exactly should we take from Ruth Batson's story? You know I can't tell you that, but I will tell you what sticks out to me. After that third meeting in 1963, after she was cut off for uttering the phrase de facto segregation, after the school committee voted to shut down the topic for discussion completely, Ruth Batson rose thanked the committee members, and exited the building. And on her way out, she was stopped by a reporter from the Boston Globe 
and asked for a comment. She said this, We're not quibbling about a word. It is not the word. It is the fact that it exists. Our whole quarrel is with their refusing to admit that the situation exists. Now, I ask you, think about today. Does that quarrel at all sound familiar? That was excellent. Thanks, Jesse. Next time on Disintegration, we'll learn about the man who put the wheels in motion, Judge W. Arthur Garrity. Music for this episode was produced by DJ Williams, Underbelly, Asher Fulero, The Westerlies, and Eric Vanderwesten. Disintegration is a production of Podcasting 101 at Boston University's College of Communication. I'm Valerie Wences. And I'm Jesse Remedios. Thanks for listening. <laughs>